Good evening. And uh, welcome to Harvard Divinity School in the Sperry Room for this wonderful event tonight, uh, the Great Bible Experiment. I welcome you on, half, on behalf of the Divinity School and also our Dean David Hempton. My name is Dudley Rose and I'm the Associate Dean for Ministry Studies here and we are glad to co-sponsor this event. So we welcome you, all of you who are sitting in these seats and also people around the world from uh, on, or on the internet and uh, we're grateful uh, for this wonderful event for all of you. Let me introduce you to your uh, moderator who uh, I count as a great friend of mine, uh, the Reverend Liz Walker, uh, spent 21 years as a, an anchor here in Boston. Her name was synonymous with integrity and insight in journalism. She was perhaps the most well-known and well-respected anchor in the city. She left that to uh, take up ministry where I got to know her best when she was a student here at Harvard Divinity School. She spent a number of years uh, in ministry now. Uh, she has, uh, is at the Roxbury Presbyterian Church in Roxbury. She's uh, spent 12 years doing humanitarian work in Sudan. Uh, you can read more about that in your brochure, um, but she has contributed always uh, that insight and integrity that she brought to journalism, to her ministry, and to her work for social justice. And so I am so glad to be able to introduce her to you and to turn the evening over to you, Liz. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dudley. And good evening to all of you, and welcome to the Great Bible Experiment an evening of dialogue about the Bible brought to you by the Massachusetts Bible Society and funded in part by the BTS Center. A special thank you to Harvard Divinity School for hosting tonight's event, and especially to our tech crew for setting up a live stream for both the Overflow Room and for those of you who are watching us from all those locations around the world. So hello to you. This event is being filmed and all or part of it may be posted online. If you want to be sure that you are not seen on camera, if you are wanted in several states, <laughs> there is a space up here in the corner and you may sit there freely. Our panelists tonight speak only for themselves, but we hope that their views combined with your own thoughtful questions will help us all learn more how to talk about the Bible in helpful and respectful ways. Not just here, but back in our churches, in our homes, and in our communities. Tonight's program will last an hour and a half, beginning with a brief set of presentations by our illustrious panelists, followed by an hour of dialogue with your questions. Now, in that tote bag that you brought in, you were all given, there are cards like this. So you have three of those, hopefully, in your tote bag. And we ask that if you have a question for one or more of the panelists, that you write it on this card. And you can circle the name of the panelists that Ann, Tom, or Warren, that you want to answer it. And someone will come and get that question from you. And I will present it to the panel. So that's the big instruction. If you are watching via the live stream, you can submit your questions by sending them in a tweet to Mass Bible using the hashtag Bible Talk. Now my role is to balance the questions so that all panelists have a chance to speak 
and to keep the discussion on track and keep it on time. And if we have more questions in time, I'm going to try to prioritize those questions so that we can touch on a variety of themes. I will also try to figure it out so that each panelist will get to talk. And uh, if there is time, I'll add a follow-up question of my own, but most importantly are your questions. We welcome questions from all perspectives. We don't expect that everyone here is a Christian or any faith at all. What we really want to do is to hear the real critiques and issues you have with the Bible. We do ask that all your questions be asked respectfully. We also ask that you try to keep your questions focused on the Bible, its contents and its role in faith, culture, and history, as opposed to questions about religion more generally. Before I introduce the panel, we have one more bit of business I want to share with you. Uh, this event, as I said, is called the Great Bible Experiment, and because we want to know whether this kind of dialogue is helpful, we're going to ask you to fill out a survey. And coming in, you were given a survey on this green sheet. So you've got lots of things that you have to have. For those of you in an official watch party location or in the overflow room, you're also given this uh, survey. We're going to tell you to look at your survey right now because there's a couple of instructions. At the top right of that survey is a place to put a program number. If you take the event program out of your bag, you'll find the number on a label on the back no, cover. It's on the top right. On the, I think it moved. Oh, say, where, where is it now? <laughs> the top the right. The top right. Oh, don't throw me new things. Okay, the top right, let me see. So it's on the top right, right, of your yeah. program. Okay, and what we want you to do is to take that number and put that number on your survey and then take the next couple of minutes to fill out the rest. So that's your instruction right now. And when you're finished, you can fold this in half, pass it down the row, the ushers will pick this up. So that's the first thing we want you to do. There will be a second short survey at the end of this evening, and we'd like you to fill that out as well. This tells us what you think about what we're doing tonight. So I'm gonna give you a couple of minutes to fill out your survey now. You've done it? You're good. Okay, give you a, a minute or so. There. So with the surveys complete, I am pleased to welcome this evening our three panelists. Their full introductions are, of course, in your programs. You may read them at your leisure. And all three of them have written books that you can find on the book table, which I believe is out there. Tom Crattenmaker is a USA Today contributing columnist specializing in religion and public life. He's director of communications at Yale Divinity School. He calls himself a secular Jesus follower and is a board member of the Yale humanist community. Father Warren Savage is a Roman Catholic priest in the Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. He is founder and president of Project Reach Out, a ministry committed to the eradication of racism and hatred in the church and society. He is currently the Catholic chaplain at Westfield State University and Amherst College and a lecturer for the Religious Studies Department at the College of Our Lady of the Elms in Chicopee, Massachusetts. And Reverend Ann Robertson is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, has served churches in Florida, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. She is an award-winning preacher, the first woman to lead the 207-year-old Massachusetts Bible Society 
a nonprofit committed to promoting biblical literacy, understanding, and dialogue. Anne created this great Bible experiment, and we thank her for that. And to start us off, each of them is going to give a five-minute response to the same question. And we're going to begin with Anne, and then we're going to go next by, uh, after Anne is Tom, and then Warren. And here's the question. What one thing do you wish everyone knew about the body? Thank you, Liz. And as I, right before I begin, I will tote Tom's new book, uh, and I mean new, he just got the shipment, what, today? Yes. Of his <laughs> new book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, which is out on the, out on the table. There it is, Warren in his sequined vest, kind of <laughs> holding that up for us. So congratulations to Tom on that, on that achievement, and I hope you'll check it out uh, after we're through. The one thing that I want people to know about the Bible is that it was not written to transmit facts of all kinds to future generations. The Bible was written to preserve oral traditions and stories of a particular people that described the truth about the nature of God as they experienced and understood it. Truth and facts are different things. Some of those stories predate writing itself by several thousand years, and every bit of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, was recorded in a time when a primary source was considered to be a person and not a text. It's only been in the last four to 500 years that we have become a text-based rather than an oral culture, thanks to the invention of the printing press and improved literacy around the globe. Because we are a text-based culture, whose primary sources are books and not people, if you went to school when I did, we weren't allowed to cite our grandparents on a research paper. We had to cite books. Books are our primary sources. And that's it, totally ingrained in our heads. But that's recent. In all of the biblical period, primary sources were not texts. Hmm. They were people. But we have become fixated on the textual details of the Bible in a way that those who originally recorded those stories and accounts were not. The ancient scribes who recorded those traditions preserved for us in the Bible were very careful to get it right. But getting it right meant the accurate transmission of truth rather than the accurate transmission of facts. I want you to listen to this account by the ancient Greek slave Aesop. The story about the wind and the sun, perhaps you've heard it. The wind and the sun were disputing about which was the stronger. Suddenly they saw a traveler coming down the road and the sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whichever of us can cause that traveler to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger. You wind, you begin. So the sun retired behind a cloud, and the wind began to blow as hard as it could upon the traveler. But the harder he blew, the more closely did the traveler wrap his cloak around him, till at last the wind had to give up in despair. Then the sun came out and shone in all his glory upon the traveler, who soon found it too hot to walk with his cloak on. Now, how many of you think that that's a true story? 
I don't see a couple hands. And they may be anticipating my next question, which is how many of you think that that story conveys truth? Many of you. That is the difference that I want you to hear from me. Today, we often make no distinction between truth and facts, as evidenced by that question when you heard me say, how many of you think it's a true story? The vast majority of you thought I was saying, is that a factual story? Did that actually happen? We conflate those two things. And I think that conflation has left us impoverished and has made our stories sterile. While all facts are true by definition, not all truth is factual. Aesop's story about the sun and the wind isn't factual. It never happened. But it conveys a truth nonetheless. That happens in the Bible all the time. It happens in the Old Testament and in the New. Jesus teaches truth through fictional stories we call parables. We don't call them fables because people would freak out if you called them fables, but that's what a parable is. It's a made-up story designed to teach a truth. The book of Job begins with the Hebrew equivalent of once upon a time. I've been in way too many Bible studies that get bogged down in debates, sometimes nasty, heated debates, over whether something is factual. And in the process, the actual truth of the story gets completely lost or not even addressed at all. Further, I see this confusion of truth and facts across the entirety of the theological spectrum. On the far left and with some of what I would call maybe the angry atheist movement sometimes, people will come onto our page online and say, this is just a myth, it's lies. Those words imply that truth is factual. And I hate to break it to you, but myth was a key way of transmitting truth for millennia. Read Joseph Campbell if you doubt me. The great myths are designed to get at some truth experienced by a specific people or culture whether you're talking about the epic creation myths, the Greek and Roman myths, or Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. These things resonate with us because they are deeply true in some way for us. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, those who take the Bible absolutely literally think that suggesting even the smallest detail of the Bible isn't factual is the same as saying it's not true. I get that all the time. Oh, so you don't believe the Bible is true. Oh, I do believe the Bible is true. And as somebody said, and some of it even happened. <laughs> Truth and facts are not the same thing. And saying the Bible isn't designed to teach facts is not the same as saying you don't believe the Bible is true. From that side, we get the insistence that the Bible was meant to teach science, history, social policy, that the Bible is factual on all those counts and therefore should take precedence over the facts learned by academic disciplines. I want to say that you can believe that God inspired these stories, lives and breathes in these stories, conveys truth in these stories, without having to believe that God is trying to be your geology professor. 
The purpose of the Bible is to transmit truth, not facts about science or history or anything else. And that is not to say that there's nothing factual in the pages of the Bible. There are historical people, places, and events in there. You can even argue that the incarnation of Jesus is the time when truth became fact. Mm -hmm. But it's just that the writings were not subject to fact checkers charged with making sure that nobody skipped a generation in the begats or checking Methuselah's birth certificate to see if he really was 969 years old. They were subject instead to truth checkers who made sure that the traditions that they recorded were in keeping with the oral tradition passed down through those people charged with keeping the story alive. So that's what I want everyone to know, that it's about truth and not facts. Hi, everybody. Hi, John. I'm really glad you came tonight. Thanks for being here. As Liz pointed out, we panelists speak only for ourselves, and I have something extra to say in that regard. It's important to know that my location on the secular end of the spectrum reveals nothing about my employer, Yale Divinity School, which is and will remain a Christian divinity school. So it's important to know that. What I wish everybody knew about the Bible, especially unchurched people, is that there is something there even for the non-religious. I'm talking about wisdom, inspiration, stories that frame and address the challenges of life and our interactions with other people, teachings that illuminate a better way to live. When I say these things, I'm mainly thinking about the figure of Jesus and what we can learn from his example and teachings as they are depicted in the Bible. Because this is the Bible content that is most compelling to me, and I suspect most compelling to a lot of other non-religious people. I wouldn't say this is the only content in the Bible that is worth considering for the non-religious, far from it. But the stories about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus are probably the parts of the Bible most accessible and interesting to non-religious folks. What I'd like secular people to know is that this wisdom and inspiration are available to them. That's a statement that might surprise some people, maybe start an argument. Some would say that Jesus, like the New Testament as a whole, like the Bible as a whole, is only for religious believers, and that there's no point engaging with this material unless you're a believer. But I sense that among a fairly significant number of non-Christians, there's an, open, an openness to and an interest in Jesus that exceeds the interest they have in the religion that revolves around him, or in the book that tells his story. Sure, there are secular people, let's face it, who cringe if Jesus or the Bible is invoked in a conversation. Uh, this is because the Bible and Jesus are radioactive to them, probably because of some experiences they've had, the ways in which the Bible and Jesus are evoked in some political and cultural contexts. We all know about that. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that there are large numbers of secular people who find the figure of Jesus intriguing, at least benign, maybe even positive, maybe even inspiring like me, and who don't wholesale reject Jesus the way they might reject religion. Yes, secular people are going to do a considerable amount of picking and choosing if they engage with the Bible. They're going to read selectively if they read it at all. 
Uh, for instance, I doubt an atheist making his or her first visit to the Bible is going to start with the genealogies. And if they do, it might be the last time they visit the Bible, <laughs> even though lots of us know that there is um, significance in those genealogies. But there are many stories and teachings that can resonate and can be helpful. The Bible gives an account of the why and the how of human existence. It's full of myth and metaphor that reflect the wisdom of the ages and address issues and crises happening here and now in individual lives and across society, across our nation. I think it would be a shame if this storehouse of wisdom, of timeless wisdom, were seen as off-limits to non-believers. And it would be a double shame, in my view, if the Jesus part were seen as off-limits and ignored by non-believers and left only to believers. There is a new book out that I want to tell you about, and I'm not talking about mine, although I do want to tell you about that, too. Show them the book, Warren. <laughs> this is a book by the longtime religion journalist Kenneth A. Briggs, whose title refers to the Bible as the, quote, invisible bestseller. And the subtitle, which you probably can't see, says, Searching for the Bible in America. By the way, I have to say, I feel outgunned by my fellow panelists and these venerable Bibles they have with them up here. And I have this dog-eared book by another journalism wretch, but maybe that's appropriate. Um, the key idea in this book by Kenneth A. Briggs is that the Bible is ubiquitous in American culture, yet, strangely enough, seldom read. He says even churches have redu reduced the importance of the Bible in their worship practices. This resonates with what we have all seen and heard about Americans' famed Bible illiteracy, such as the fact that only four in 10 of us can correctly name who it was who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. That's a true fact. And I mean, a factual true fact. <laughs> Here's something interesting that Briggs writes in the book, which really stuck with me, quote, fewer people are looking to the Bible for anything these days, end quote, and he adds something that's important and maybe puzzling. He says, quote, yet the figure of Jesus looms as large as ever in the public mind. Christianity is retaining a Christ-centeredness that is depending less on the Bible and more on a popularized version of Jesus as the world's greatest guy, end quote. <laughs> So I have to admit that um, I'm guilty of this in my secular way with the work that I'm doing around this concept of being a secular Jesus follower and with this book that's coming out. So yes, I think Kenneth Briggs might be on to something when he talks about the emergence of a Bibleless Jesus, which is a strange and interesting concept. I say it's strange because without the Bible, there would be no Jesus for us to engage with today. Am I right about that? So I'm not even sure how to square these things. I'm not going to try to answer that now. That's the thought I will leave you with as we move on to the next panelist. Thank you, Tom. I can rest my hand now. So what do I want you to know about the Bible? No, just one thing. And I'm going to sing it to you. I sang last week, but I'm going to change the song. <laughs> Open my eyes, Lord. 
Help me to see your face. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear your voice. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to feel your love. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love. So here's the deal. The Bible for me is the place where I experience the face of God. It is the place where I hear the voice of God. And it is also the place where I feel the deep abiding love of God. It's personal. <laughs> God is personal. And for me, the personal God is not about a book. It's about a relationship. And for me, the relationship begins every morning when I open up the book to encounter the face of God and to hear the voice of God and to feel God's love. I really try to figure it out every single morning. And how do I do that? I read a little piece of scripture. After I look at that faced word or words, and I listen deeply to the voice, and I try to feel what's in that word, that energy, I open up my journal, and I take a little bit of that scripture and chew on it for about 40 minutes. And then I write something. You can take that little journal. Hold it now. Don't drop it. It's going to be a relic one day. So open it up. <laughs> And in that book, you will see writing every day. Every day, the Lord is penetrating my mind and heart, my being, and it comes to my fingertips. And I hold myself responsible for that which I've seen, heard, and felt. That's personal. That practice is called Lexi Divina. Now, I just didn't learn that. Don't read everything. <laughs> Look at her, getting in my juice. Look at you. I know. So, so it's, it's, this is the real deal because, because I didn't just pick that up on my own. I had to witness somebody doing this. I had to really look at somebody practicing this. And the one who taught me how to do this, her name was Mama Savage. That's my mama. Mother Savage. And she had seven little savages. I'm one of seven savages. But my mother, the Baptist mother, she's Baptist. My father was Catholic. So I learned how to read the scriptures and to encounter God in the scriptures through my Baptist mother, not my Catholic father. My mother always said, God loves you, God loves you, because the Bible tells you that, Warren. You better get into that Bible. And my father thought my mother was crazy for reading that Bible all the time. My father would just say, God's going to get you, God's going to get you, God's going to get you, God's going to get you. I like that Baptist God because that Baptist God said, God just loves you. But she would open that book every single morning. And when I would come home, she would be in that Bible. And she'd be preparing herself for, for Sunday school because she was a Sunday school superintendent. And she would hold her pastor accountable for misinterpreting the scriptures. In her mind, if he didn't do his work, she knew it. She knew it. And she would call him accountable. You better get into that word. Get into his face. 
listen to his voice, and you better feel his heart because you didn't preach it right. <laughs> you see, it's personal. I want us to know that the Bible is about a personal God who wants to know us deeply, to love us deeply. And I think that beautiful Bible conveys an energy, a force that the world needs today. And for me, that word, that energy is just called L-O-V-E. Because that Bible is about God's creative love, a redemptive love, and a love that always transforms whatever is chaotic and messed up. But when I open up that book, I know that God is calling me into that God zone of love. It's, it's about love. No matter how you read it, and sometimes the stories sound crazy, they sound weird, and they don't make sense, but that's why we have to stay with it. Because if we stay with it long enough, God's face shows up right in that word. <laughs> God's voice begins to speak deeply. It's quiet. It's still. And God's heart will just grab you. It's important for us, I believe, in the 21st century not to underestimate the power of the word of God. Because that word is transformative, it's creative, but the energy in it is called love. And I think if we really understand that and penetrate it deeply every single day, getting into that word, behind the word, and digging into it, and finding that deep treasure of love, I think we find ourselves being transformed every day by that experience. It's personal. It's personal. So it's not about reading. It's about meeting a person, a divine human person. And when we encounter that person, it changes everything. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see your face. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear your voice. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to hear. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love like you. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you. What wonderful and different perspectives on the Bible. If you have a question, please write it down, and one of our ushers will pick that question up. They're going to start doing that now. But I'm going to start off, and I'm going to ask this to you, Father, because you have such a wonderful relationship with the Bible. But what do you say to someone whose relationship is not so positive, someone who believes the Bible has been used to persecute them or make them feel like the other or uh, resulted in sexual abuse for them or all the other kinds of things that, that are done sometimes in the name of religion? How do you defend the Bible to them? I don't defend it. That's one thing I don't do. I don't defend the Bible. I simply ask people, and I, and I have this experience more often than you think, uh, I ask people, who do you think God is for you? I actually put the Bible aside for a while. <laughs> if the Bible has been uh, used to abuse somebody or to provoke some kind of violation, I'm not going to stick it in his or her face. I'm going to put it aside. Tell me what you, who you think God is for you. What kind of God do you want to meet? And oftentimes they'll say, I want a God who understands me and loves me and cares for me. I want a God who won't hurt me. I said, that God's available to you. And I'm going to introduce you to that God. 
But I want you to know that God is not to be found first and foremost in the Bible. You know that God because that God exists in your heart. So the very first thing I invite people to do is to discover the God in this scripture, the body scripture. Because there is a deep, deep sense that there is some divine energy in me that really cares about me. And that takes a journey. That's a journey. That takes time. So I have that dialogue. So many times I don't begin with the Bible. <laughs> if it's been, a, been used in a way that is uh, counterproductive or has been used to cause abuse or hurt and pain, uh, take that, put that aside. There's another way. We find another way. The story that I like about the Bible, and it's, it's a wisdom story. It's the story when the Magi come to see Jesus. The three wise men come and they follow the star and they discover Jesus in the manger with Mary and Joseph because Herod had told him previously, when you find him, come and tell me so I may go and you know, pay respect to him too. But this is what the three wise men did. They went back home another route. For me, that's, that's informative and instructive. We have to find other ways, a different way to approach life and come back home another way home to a place of safety, home to a place of love, home to a place of compassion, home to a place of wholeness. That's the work of, of, of spiritual people. Find another way to find wholeness, love, and peace. And sometimes the Bible will teach me how to do that without, without my having to give the Bible to anybody or to use the Bible that way. Tom, did you have? Yeah, I just wanted to add something. Um, Liz, I think you were spot on with the way you set up that question because we all know about the many ways in which the Bible has been weaponized or the ways in which people have been hit with the so-called clobber verses. That's really problematic and there's been too much of that. I have observed though that often the antithesis of those hateful things is the Bible itself. And the Christians I know can point to other verses and they can accurately say, no, this is the message. And often then it's love and acceptance and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I wanna tag team on that to say that sometimes I, I also would go to the Bible and say not only different verses, but sometimes just different interpretation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the problem of taking the Bible factually, literally, a lot of the issues that people have, at least that I've encountered, go away if you don't have to take it literally. And I come from a place in my own life where I grew up and when I was a young person through my early 20s, I took the Bible absolutely literally. I had a sticker on my college dorm room door that said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Hmm. And it was difficult to have dialogue with me. <laughs> you could have monologues from me, but you couldn't have real dialogue with me. Um, because I could not be wrong. <laughs> and if you cannot be wrong, what's the point in trying to have a dialogue with someone? And so sometimes, you know, it, I think it really depends. All three of the things that we've talked about in approaching the kind of situation that you posed are all valid options depending on the situation and the person and how, how you feel the spirit move in the moment. Okay. Here's a question for you, Anne. How would you account for the drop-off in biblical literacy in the state uh, founded as God's commonwealth? 
Ah, yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a question that could involve lots of books and, and lots of history books. A couple of perspectives. One, as a Mayflower descendant myself, um, <laughs> you, my family goes back a long, I'm New England. Uh, some, some towns in New England, that's all that counts. Uh, but the, what has happened in New England uh, and in, in Plymouth, in Plymouth, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you know, my forebears came over for religious freedom. Don't persecute us. And then we settled in and started persecuting people. And on my mother's side of the family, that's just about as old only in Rhode Island, which is where Roger Williams fled the persecution in Massachusetts and, and went down there, um, they tried again, and the rallying call was the separation of church and state. And in some, in some cases, in a lot of cases where religion has gone off the rails and therefore alienated people from it is when church and state have been joined. And the overlapping of politics and religion is doing as much damage and creating as many people who want to heave this book through a window today as it, as it ever did. But it's part of that, I can't be wrong, and then you tie the power of God to the power of state and army and wealth, and you start to have some real trouble. And so we've, we've sort of gone up and down, but that, um, I think just that insistence that it can only be one way, and whatever that one way is has changed over history and time, but that insistence that we who have the power will tell you how God speaks through this, through this work and what you need to believe about it um, has made a lot of people say, mm, not so much. And that's, uh, I actually see and have started this great Bible experiment because a lot of what I've seen when I go out now preaching in churches of all kinds, that that monolithic view of scripture that is out in our culture has driven people away in droves. And when I can go out and say, you know, there are other ways to read the Bible. There are other valid Christian ways to read and interpret the Bible. There is not just one way, but only one way has had the microphone since about the 1980s. And I find people in the Commonwealth and other places come back around when there can be more than one way to look at this book. This is for you, Tom. Given that we have so little factual information about Jesus, the historical Jesus, what does a Bible-free Jesus look like? I should let people know that I'm not bothered by the reality that some of the stories about Jesus in the Bible might not be factually accurate. And as we know, some of the stories he told, they weren't even supposed to be factually accurate. Um, I'm engaging what, with what I call a face value Jesus, and to me there's value in the story, whether it's factually happened or not. So it's true that we don't really know all that much about the historical Jesus. And that's a real, the quest for the historical Jesus 
is interesting and important. I one time went, I once went to one of those seminars actually in the 1990s of the uh, Jesus Seminar mm -hmm. where they study that. But I think that between the um, poetic stories and the great fiction that's in there and the factual accounts, there's so much to engage with and there's so much that's instructive and inspiring that there's a lot to go on. And moreover, I find that so much of it, and this is uncanny, so much of it is absolutely applicable to the things that are going on today in, in this country, in this society. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. This is for all of you, but I'm gonna start with you, Father. Most of the Bible is shared with Judaism and Christianity, but many Christians tend not to embrace that. Why? <laughs> Mostly out of fear and spiritual arrogance. I work at Westfield State University at an interfaith center. And when you walk in, you will see on the shelves the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, the Quran, and the Christian Bible is in various translations even. And the students are encouraged to read their own scriptures first. You have to know your own scripture before you can dialogue with somebody else's scriptures. But we do have a group of students, some Jewish students, Muslim students, and Christian students who will read a particular section of their text, maybe the great commandment in, in ours, maybe the love command in the Quran, and, and maybe something from Leviticus chapter 19, 18 about loving your neighbor might become the text that we investigate together with the rabbi, the imam, and myself. It is critical that we have interfaith understanding, that we have mutual respect, and that we understand that God speaks not just to Christians, but God speaks to Jewish people and Muslim people as well. For any particular group to think that he or she has the monopoly uh, on a religious tradition only creates more conflict, more division, and potential violence that we are experiencing today. And so the real truth is, and this is, uh, this is not just in Catholic circles, Catholics, Catholics Protestants, Baptists, uh, a lot of mainline Protestant churches uh, will demonize Muslims and Jewish people, which is unfortunate today. But I think that is the result of, of again, spiritual arrogance and, and, and ignorance and not being open to the possibility that God's wisdom and truth can be found in, in other places, other sacred texts. More so than ever, given what's going on today, it is critical that we know our scriptures first and foremost, but that we be open to understanding how God speaks to the Jewish and our Muslim brothers and sisters as well. Interfaith, interreligious affairs is critical today. Quick follow-up then. How would you interpret the text, I am the way, the truth, and the light, the only way to the Father is through Jesus? Well, I mean, for Christians that would, that would be true, but it doesn't mean that I use it as a boundary or as a, a litmus test for, for others because the Jewish people have their texts, and they're saved by what they know in their texts. We're saved by what we know in our texts, and the Muslim people will be saved by what they know in their texts, but we cannot use the scriptures as a competitive tool or as a wedge for any particular tradition to be super sessionist to Jews or to Muslims is out of the question. So I think for Christians, we would hold that. That's, that's, that's what we believe but it doesn't mean we use it as a barrier uh, to understanding and to respect for others as well. 
And I would say that that follow-up question is, can go to a question of interpretation. Because when we have hundreds of years, if not thousands of years of interpretation stuck behind that passage of I am the way and the truth and the life. And what, when I look at that, I say, all right, so Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father except through me. Well, who is me? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the word made flesh. God, God in human form is what I believe as a Christian. God, Jesus is God. And what is God? The Bible tells me that God is love. And so the way to the Father is to experience love in the flesh. And in my experience, that is absolutely, that's a psychological truth that we cannot even begin to comprehend the unconditional love of God without first having experienced unconditional love in the flesh from another human being. So when I look at that passage, I see a spiritual truth of God coming to us in the flesh to, to enable us as limited human beings to be able to experience love. And that our primary task now as the ones who carry forth as the disciples of Jesus, you know, Jesus, as he breathes on the disciples in the Gospel of John, says, as God has sent me, so I am sending you. And so our job now is to be Christ for others, is to be God in the flesh for others. And it's, it's just true to me that whatever your faith, you don't come to the position of being able to fathom, let alone accept, the love, the unconditional love of God without having first experienced that in the flesh. And that's the truth that I find in that, in that passage, which allows me to blow it out to, to any faith tradition or no faith tradition at all. This is a question for you, Warren. Do you think that there is a fundamental difference between the inspiration of the scriptures and the inspiration of other great human literature? How is the Bible different if it is? Well, again, uh, God's inspiration isn't limited to the Bible, but we believe that that is a primary source of God's inspiration. God also inspires creation. We can find this breath of God, this life of God, in literature outside of biblical tradition. We can find it in poetry. We can find it in all kinds of literature throughout the world. God's wisdom is universal, so I imagine I bump into it everywhere. Mm -hmm. But for me, I find it primarily here in the Word of God. So inspiration means something uh, that God has breathed into this particular Word, this living Word, this Word that Anne just described. That is a particular person. And that person is Jesus. He's that living Word. So that's very particular to us. That, that gives me a particular identity. That's my Christian identity. But I can also find that truth in other places, in, in other realms. And I have to be open to that as well. Again, we, we are only able in a limited way to comprehend this, this incredible mystery. The mystery understands us, but we don't understand the mystery. That's, that's the real conundrum. 
There's great mysteries everywhere to be uh, discovered and encountered, but we have this privileged place of encountering that mystery in the Word of God. So that's fundamental. When I open this up, I feel the inspired presence of God in that word. It dances on the page. It's the God's there. But I can also feel God in creation when I'm driving. When I look out over the, you know, the mountains and the trees and I sit at a lake, God is also present there. That's inspiration as well. My mother was inspired. Every time she hugged me, that was a little taste of God, the inspiration through her. I think that's a, it's a very beautiful question, but inspiration is not limited just to the scriptures. It's everywhere. I, w- I would like to uh, add to that. There are some people in the um, secular world who I know who are reading great novels like a sacred text. There's even a new podcast by somebody who's connected to the school. And it's about reading Harry Potter as your sacred text. I listened to it over the weekend, and it was beautiful. It was wise. It was loving. It was insightful. I really loved it. So um, this sort of echoes what Warren said, but there's inspiration and wisdom in many sources. That said, from a very practical standpoint, I will grant specialness to the Bible. It's been around for a very long time. It's time-tested. Compare that to maybe a novel that came out last week. It may be a wise and beautiful novel, but I think that there may be a reason to give a little extra respect to the Bible because it's been around so long. And then for me personally, the Bible is where you get the stories about Jesus. And as you know by now, that has special resonance with me. This is uh, sort of on the same subject. In creating the curriculum, Anne, did you have an experience or some special calling or inspiration that shaped the process that you decided to share with us? Can you sh- In creating this, this curriculum, this. this. This came out of my frustrations as someone who grew up with the Bible. You know, I was in a Bible-believing home, in a Christian home, I could read the Bible as soon as I could read um, and engaged it fully long before people knew they should start telling me what to think about it. And so I had that as an advantage. I already had some opinions that were formed before people were trying to shape it and form it for me. Um, And as a result, I've been frustrated in this you know, when the reports would come out every year from the American Bible Society, which is related to us in name only, um, and the Barna Group about these least Bible-minded cities in America, and here we are, you know, Boston's number 99 out of 100 metro areas across the country, and the highest city in New England is number 86. And as it remembering, as one of the other questions mentioned, you know, the great, both of the Great Awakenings came out of New England. We have a strong religious history and foundation here. And as I go out and preach in congregations, I discovered that there was, a, in some cases, just outright animosity against the Bible, an apathy towards the Bible, a fear of engaging it uh, and fears that hit many different, um, have many different roots. And that just made me sad. This is a 
This is a book that I have lived with my entire life, that I have built. I see everything I see these days through the lens of some Bible story or other. It informs me in just about everything that I do. And, and I know my own journey from that very literalist, fundamentalist young woman to have that ice broken a little bit. And as that broke apart, I saw the depths below me were so wonderful and deep. And I said, man, I've just been skating on the surface of this thing. And there's so much underneath. And, but everybody is just listening to that one sort of the conservative, conservative white evangelical microphone has been out there pretty much as the only thing since the 80s. It's been so strong that they even have their own polling group in, in the political cycle. And that's one way of interpreting the Bible. And many think it's the only way. And they've been turned off by it. And my Bible-loving soul looked out and said, no, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. there, there's, there are other ways to see it. And in my experience, when people, when I could open that up for people, whether through a sermon or through a Bible study or something, people changed. And they said, oh, maybe I can have this book after all. If I don't, one woman after church one Sunday said, did I just hear you say I don't have to take this literally? <laughs> and I said, yes, actually you did just hear me say that. She had tears coming down her face, and she said, I can, have my, I can have my Bible back. I can have this text again. And that seeing the difference that that has made in individual lives and congregations made me think, you know, maybe that's a bigger issue in this, in this region. Maybe people just simply are swallowing whole, and I found it on the left and on the right, this notion that it, it has to mean exactly what it says in black and white and, and no interpretation. Um, that maybe opening that up for people could allow people to have this book that I have loved in a, in a variety of ways all of my life, that they could have it back. Mm. This kind of, I think, is a follow-up to that. If deep understand, and this is to all three of you, if deep understanding of the Bible requires reading much of it, if you agree, uh, not just the short highlights, uh, not just the cliff notes, how do we motivate people to engage the book at this level? And, and my follow-up to that in the question is, can you scan the Bible? Is it, is it a cliff note kind of book? They have cliff notes. No, <laughs> right. no, I, no, but I, I mean, but is that a way to really engage this book? As, um, as I tell my students, you, especially those who are in dating situations, you, you, don't, you don't scan a date. <laughs> you, 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 you have to spend time with, you have to spend time with someone. You have to spend a lot of time. You have to ask a lot of questions. And if you should spend a lot of time with that person, you still are encountering a mystery. You never get to know that person com completely. You could be married 40 years, and your partner can still be a mystery to you. <laughs> the Bible 
is no different than you have to have a relationship. You have to spend time with that Bible. And you have to spend time reading it. And you have to spend time sitting with it. You got to spend time holding it. You got to spend time tasting it. And you got to spend time listening to it. These are all the things in the 21st century that, that seem impossible given our addiction to iPhone technology and texting. So in this culture, it's going to be very, very difficult to get people to sit still long enough for anything because we just want to move to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. That's not how we have an experience with God. Mm -hmm. You know, God is not popcorn. You know, God wants you to sit still long enough that God and you, God and myself, can engage this relation. This is a relational issue. And if there's a problem in our world today, it's in the area of relationships. Okay, because we have not yet learned how to relate to one another as human beings. That's so critical. There's an anthropological dimension that we have to experience before we can step into the more spiritual and more, more uh, I guess you would say, sublime uh, issues of life. Because at the anthropological level, I got to get to know you this way. <laughs> and if I can't get to know you this way, and I have a struggle getting to know you this way, Imagine how much more complicated it is when you encounter the mystery, the invisible mystery. Oh my goodness. So the question is, you know, you know, who wants to spend time with some other, not just some other, but this other is God. Who really understands that God's important in my life? And if God is important in my life, I'm going to spend time with God every day, every day. Thank you. I imagine, Tom, you might have a slightly different answer. I want to underscore something you hinted at, and that is it's a big, tough ask to get Americans, people in this culture, to read the Bible. It's tough to get them to read, but the Bible is tough sledding through much of it. Um, you probably know, but there have been attempts over the years to try to create more engaging, easy-to-read versions. I remember that, um, I'm going to say 10 years ago, there was an attempt to um, present the Bible like a teenage magazine. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Do you remember that? And then uh, more recently, there was something called the story, which reorganized and reflowed the Bible to make it more of a continuous narrative. I honestly don't know if these were successful, but I think they do underscore that there's this ongoing effort to make the Bible more readable, accessible, more fun to read. Um, I don't know if those things work. I was going to say, in response to how do you get people to read, I teach three classes this semester. I have 22 students in one class, 32 in another class, and 28 in another class. Every class we begin with scripture. We spend 50 minutes reading scripture. My students get a piece of scripture and they have to do the practice I just talked about, Lexio Divina. 99% of the students never read the Bible before. So at the end of the semester, I've been teaching for 38 years. At the end of the semester, they say, this is the best part of the course, was getting to read the scripture. They come in now, early in class, to get the scripture, to get a head start on reading the scripture. I don't think it's a problem getting people to read. The problem is finding committed people who want to sit down and help people to read the Bible. All right? It's, it's a very serious issue. And I blame Christians more than anybody else. And I blame pastors more than anybody else. Because we have to be committed to the word of God. And if they see us committed, 
they say, you know, there's something crazy about that priest up there. He's reading that scripture. And I give it to them. And many of them have not been in churches ever, ever. They have no religious background, zero. Some of them are Catholics, nominal. They got baptized and that was it. So when I open up the scriptures and give it to them and they sit down and read a little bit of text from Luke's gospel or from the Pauline letters and we begin to parse those words and get behind them, all of a sudden the transformative moment is taking place right before my eyes and they can relate it to their own human experience. I find it fascinating when I put a piece of scripture in front of a college student and he or she says, this changes my life. I get excited over that. So if you count the number of students in my semester, that's a lot of people reading the Bible. That's a lot of people reading the Bible. To get five people, 10 people in a semester to read a Bible is a miracle, but I have a lot more than that. So over the years, many of my students now are reading the Bible because they learned it in a class. I teach scripture, so that's why I can, I can do that. <laughs> you know, I, I teach scripture, but I also teach other disciplines like sacraments and liturgy, or, or even my deacon formation class where we have men who are um, training to become deacons, they have to read scripture at least two hours a week. It's mandatory, especially if they want to be preachers. You have to, you have to read two hours before you even begin to preach. I want to make sure you read that, that text two hours, set it aside. Tell your wife you're busy reading the, the Bible. Tell your children, wake me up, or no, don't wake me up, don't bother me, let me get into my word. This is critical. I think it's very, very easy to get people to read the Bible if, in fact, you're serious yourselves about reading the Bible. And if everybody in this place just took one person and you sat down with that one person and said, let us have a little Bible discussion, you'd be surprised what happens. It's and a miracle. I, I would emphasize community uh, because it is a tough slog. And if you start off, if you say, you know... Warren's right, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna open a Bible and I'm gonna start in Gen Genesis and I'm gonna read all the way through to Revelation. And you are, you're gonna be all right kind of through Genesis. There's some great stories. Um, by about Exodus 25, your eyes are gonna to start to glaze over and you get into Leviticus and you're gonna be on medication. <laughs> so, and they don't call it numbers for nothing. Um, so there are, a lot of Bible reading has been killed by the zeal of this is, this is a single book and I'm going to open it up and just read it start to finish. This is a library. In Protestant versions, there are 66 different books from different periods of history in here. Um, Catholics have more, the Orthodox add a couple more to it. Um, but getting in a group who say, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna figure out, we're gonna get a Bible study, we just happen to have some out on the table, um, mm. but we're going to engage in a Bible study together, we're going to help each other figure out some of the context of some of these things. These are old, old. This is, you know, older than dirt mm -hmm. in, um, in many of these things. We don't have a clue these stories come from the ancient Near East. The New Testament is 2,000 years old. And we don't understand, as Westerners, the Middle East today. 
let alone in the early Stone Age. So having, being able to study in a group, having a study Bible that can help us get through some of the, what the heck is a shekel and how long is a cubit and to sort through some of those things can, and having those discussions in groups, whether, whatever you're doing, it's better with others. Let me interrupt you here because I think you guys are kind of singing to the choir. Yep. Uh, and I would, would uh, push back gently and lovingly. So let's go to my neighborhood where there are young kids who could care less about your Bible, could care less about your Jesus. What book would you first suggest to them as an, as an untrue? <coughs> who have no idea what you're talking about, who are not going to be in your classes in school, but obviously need direction. I, I would suggest the shortest book in the New Testament is Mark. You can read all of Mark in 45 minutes, but I would begin there because Mark, Mark's book, is, it's, it's a story. It's a very quick story, but they will get everything they need to know about Jesus in the Mark's gospel, but it's easy to digest. It was written for illiterate people so that when, it was, when they heard that story, they could remember Mark's version, but they also could relate to something very basic to Mark, which is about the suffering servant, suffering. So in your neighborhood, there's a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. So I would be able to take Mark's gospel and make it real for them. This, this is the Jesus who identifies with those who are suffering, those who are in pain, those who, are, who feel persecuted for whatever reason. So I would begin to engage, not, I don't have to do a lot of scripture, but just enough to, to, to make them curious. Mm -hmm. The idea of reading scripture is to make it curious for Jesus, to make it curious for God. And maybe we have lost that sense of curiosity. We have to uh, engage people in a way that makes them curious to know who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's not an easy task. But again, uh, young people are open. They're open. To, they're, they're not so close-minded. They're open. And they're I don't open. think, I, w I wouldn't start with a book. I would start with a story, a parable, something that related, you know, presumably if I've, been able to get enough of an audience with a group of people that they are actually stopping to listen to what I have to say. I know something about their situation and who they are. And I might pull from the culture mm -hmm. to be able to connect people to a story. You know, people being bullied. Do you feel like you're just a little guy up against a huge giant and there's no way, there's no way on earth that you can ever win. Mm -hmm. Well, there was this kid once, and there were armies, and they wanted a champion to fight this big honking dude who was decked out in the badass armor <laughs> that you just, and here was this little kid, and all he had was a slingshot. And you know what, he went up and he beat that giant. He went into, I'm a gamer, so you know, he went up to the boss fight and he nailed it. He, he got that guy. Um, is that a true story? <laughs> yes, it is. It's an absolutely true story. It's an absolutely true story. But to be able to bring in absolutely. those true Bible stories 
before even letting somebody know, you know, instead of saying, let me tell you something that's in the Bible. Mm -hmm. To bring, the reason this is still in existence after thousands and thousands of years is because those stories resonate. Whether you're the kid being bullied, whether maybe you're the bully, maybe you work for ExxonMobil and you've been the giant. Mm -hmm. um, there are points of entry, the, the prodigal son parable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, let me tell you about a, a story of a kid I, I heard about once and engage people with the story and then ease into the fact that that comes out of the Bible. Tom, what about you? What, what text? This goes, to the, this goes to the authority of the Bible. And even when I was a kid in the United States, the Bible had authority. And even if you weren't super religious, which was the case in my household, you still knew that this book was special and deserved a kind of reverence. And if somebody said to you, hey, I want to teach you this truth about life and about God, and you would ask why, and they'd say, well, it's in this Bible. And you would think, oh, well, that might be a good reason to believe it. But I think that is what's eroding now, the authority of the Bible. There are more and more Americans who just don't believe in what has been the traditional religion of this country. So it makes for a more difficult conversation to try to talk to these kids that you're imagining. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would echo, though, what um, Anne is saying. If you can't point to the authority of the, the Bible, you appeal to the quality and the applicability and the brilliance of the teaching. Mm -hmm. And if that goes well, and I think you can do it, I think you can take these stories and you can show how it would be transformative to this problem we have in our life or in society, then you might start building up some interest and some trust, and then you might want to look at some other teachings too. And I think the conversation can go on from there. But I just want to emphasize that in this emerging day and age, it has to do with the quality of the stories and the teachings rather than the authority of the Bible. You know what story resonates with some of my neighbors most of all, my young men? The Jericho Road. Because we live on the Jericho Road. And the role that you might play. Are you the guys, you know, are you the, you know, the winos down there, you know, who's been beaten up? Are you the guy who walks by in the suit? That's the Good Samaritan story. Yeah, the Good Samaritan, the Jericho Road. Here's a, here's a question, and we're, uh, there's so many great questions, and I'm sorry that we can't get them to them all, but here's one. How the Bible really sees, how do you believe the Bible really looks at the LGBTQ community? Well, my answer is it looks at everybody with, with love. There's no, there should be no discrimination in God's love. In the God zone, there's no discrimination. So this means that if we are all made in the image and likeness of God, which is one of those beautiful lines from Genesis chapter 1, verses 20. 6 through 27, if we're all made in the image and likeness of God, we have intrinsic dignity. We all have dignity and we all have worth. We all are to be respected and held up as a child of God. I can assure you, and, and, and I hope this is true, that when we go to heaven, there are no categories, black, white, polka dotted, LBGBT. I don't think that, ex in the Catholic Church, we have, we have these um, ethnic parishes that you have in Boston. So you have Polish uh, parishes and French parishes and Irish parishes and and Lithuanian parishes and so the Polish people won't go to a Catholic church that's Irish because that's an Irish God yeah, they won't go to the church that's French because that's a French God even within our own denomination there's there's it's messed up it's it's messed up as if God has this particular culture only 
and I'm only going to that church, and mass must be different in that Polish church. And, and, and we have denominations across the spectrum. Uh, Sunday is the most divided time in America because everybody's in a different place pretending they worship the same God. So, so there is a basic truth in my mind, and this universal truth is that if God is love and everything abides in that love, all these other issues disappear. And somehow we have to learn how to live from that place here on earth. Where that zone of God requires of me to live in that zone, not to be of the world, but to be of the God zone. And for me, that's, that's, that's love. So LGBT, those people are loved. Anybody They're loved. Want to add to that? It's easy for a secular person to address that <laughs> because the secular person can easily say that those who wrote and compiled scripture didn't understand LGBT people, didn't know any, didn't understand homosexuality. We have a much different understanding now that's informed by science and the lived experience we've had in this culture the last several decades. That's taught us a lot. For a lot of people, they're going to put more stock in that than what it says in this, um, in this ancient book. It's really interesting that you brought this up because you've pointed to one of the big reasons why the Bible has lost authority in places like New England and in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I came from and where I lived until a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I would add that the fact that this issue is the one that is dividing us to schism, I just think God must look and say, what? Really? That's the thing? That of all the thousands and thousands of verses in the Bible, you're focusing on you know, less than 10? when there's over 500 just in the Gospels alone about money and possessions, this is what you're deciding are, is the key to all of scripture? You know, this is what you're dividing the church over? Really, people? Um, when you look at all of the things that the Bible teaches, one, you have the issue of taking it literally. And, you know, many of us have been on the pointy end of the Bible for one reason or another. You know, I started ministry as a woman pastor in rural northwest Florida. And that the church I was assigned to was getting a divorced Yankee woman from a liberal seminary was not anyone's idea of God's will. And not mine, not theirs. And they, they let me know that in no uncertain terms. You know, a young 14-year-old in my youth group says, my mother says you're evil. Why? <laughs> well, sit down. We, we need to have a conversation. Um, but that was, I have, I have stories that could fill this entire hour and a half about people quoting at me that, you know, women shouldn't speak in church and women shouldn't have authority over a man and the Bible says that. Well, yes, it does. Um, but it also says that in Christ there is no male or female, which to me hits both of those issues. There's Paul, of all people, saying, guess what? In Christ, gender doesn't matter. That's one way to interpret that in Christ there is no male or female. Um, that we have interpreted some passages in ways that we want. Um, I think the fact that we are focusing down 
on the issues of human sexuality when the Bible is so clearly about you know, the, the issues for Jesus especially and for the prophets are totally about other things. They're, um, you know, they have, the prophets have Bernie Sanders all over them. <laughs> you know, the, the income inequality, if your church goes by the lectionary this last week, um, was all over it. Um, we just, we, we have things way out of whack, and I think the focus on that says more about us and our problems as a society than it does about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's a rather, and, and we're almost, am I going by this time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we'll, here's a, an interesting question. It seems to me that there is too much vicariousness in the way people interpret Christ and the Bible. This puts people in a passive uh, position. Rather, how can we put ourselves into the flow of the unfolding story, which I think you spoke to a little bit, Father, making God's story our story? So how do we, especially my kids on the street and that kind of yeah, thing, we I have, think you've talked right, about it. We have this beautiful word in theology called incarnation. <laughs> the fact that God became human in Jesus means that God intends for God, God's self, to be involved in the human condition. That there's something in this human condition that God wants to be involved in and maybe change, transform it, and redeem it. So that means we cannot talk about scripture without being in dialogue with the human condition. We have to take human experience as a grounding for the interpretation of scripture. So if we gave you a piece of scripture and asked you to look at it through the lens of your experience, we all would get a different sense of what God is saying to us in the moment. All of that is valid because God speaks to you where you're at. So if we're in Roxbury, uh, you know, running up and down Blue Hill Avenue, and we had a piece of scripture, the Jericho story, they could relate to that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as you say, because they witnessed people getting, you know, mm -hmm. probably, you know, stabbed or, or, or shot or, mm -hmm. you know, knocked, uh, knocked down on one end of the street to the other. But it's very critical for interpretation to be, uh, to be connected to the human experience. That's the beginning point. How does it relate to my experience? In, in my classes, that's what I do. How does this passage relate to your experience? We did a passage from First Thessalonians today, and it, and it had Paul talking about uh, the duty to love one another, and, and once again, not to, to see people as uh, uh, you know, Jew or Greek, slave or free, but to treat everybody as your brother and sister. So all of my students had addressed the racial tension that's going on in the society, that this passage addresses our responsibility to ease the racial tension and racism by doing a better job at loving one another. That came from them. It wasn't provoked. I just said, how does this relate to what's going on today? So they can make the connection. If we give them the piece of scripture and open up the field, oh my, that spirit takes over, the Holy Spirit takes over. Go on, my secularist. When it comes to... <laughs> thank you for the, for the setup. When it comes to the teachings of Jesus, I'm going to uh, cite the wisdom from a famous company that's located in the part of the country that I came from two years ago, a Portland-based company called Nike. And what do they say? Just do it. And that's been my project since I've gone all in on this idea of being a secular Jesus follower. And 
it's not abstract. I mean, I've found it to be transformative in the way that I deal with people and with situations, and I've found that it works. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this book of mine is show how it works and how transformative it can be. So I know sometimes theology and scripture can seem very abstract, and the antidote is to just do it. Yeah, and another aspect of that is sometimes people don't approach scripture because they're afraid of it. You know, it's sort of been taught that it's, it's out there. This is the holy book. And if you, especially if you've been raised with an image of a harsh, judgmental God who has a finger on the trap door to hell and is just looking for the first excuse to hit that button and, and send you down. Um, I've encountered in a lot of people a real fear because if I read this for myself, suppose I don't agree with what I've been taught it means. And will God then hate me? Is it, is it safe to read this and to have my own thoughts about it? And that um, alleviating that fear comes, sometimes it needs to come from the leaders, the pastors and other leaders in a church, but making this a safe place for people ha who have those kinds of fears. And even looking at, you know, we have, we have four different gospels um, and if you believe, as I do, that God had a role in shaping which texts came to us, however strict a role you believe that to be, that God said, you know, I'm, I'm going to mess with your head. I'm going to give you four different versions of the same story and then let you figure that out and work with it. And maybe I... I think that encourages us to say, all right, here's Matthew's version of what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus, and here's Mark's version, and here's Luke's version, and John's version, and so what's your version? You know, if you, if you were writing the gospel according to Warren or to Tom, what would that look like? And being able to invite people in, there was a, a project for a while, maybe it's still going on, that invites people to go beyond the end of Acts because Acts comes out at, um, what, Acts 28, I think it is? Is that the last chapter of Acts? Am I getting that right? Um, is 28, and the project is called Acts 29, which says, all right, here, here's how the church progressed through the end of what we have, but how has it, how has it moved out? Where do you fit in to this story? And... Um, but I think for some people, that permission needs to come from a person in authority. Because if, if it's the, author, the authoritative figure of God that they're afraid of, they need the permission from their priest, from their pastor sometimes, to be able to say, it's, it's okay. What, what you think of it, you're, you're entitled to have an opinion, and God is not going to strike you dead for having the wrong one. This has been a great conversation, don't you think so? Mm -hmm. I think we should give And it's, you can tell that because it's gone so fast, but I, I've got one more bit of uh, instruction for you. You're going to be given 
one of these sheets, this lime color. We ask that it's the second survey, and we ask that you take a few minutes to fill it out. Please use the same number on the back of your program that you used on the first survey. We can come down here and have some snacks or something. This is just as I said, so we can know how, what you think about this, what we can do different, what we can learn from this. So please fill this out, take a few minutes. What's going to happen with the questions that we did? Are you going to? There's so many questions here. Yes. We, one of the things I've been doing is after each one of these things, only at every event we've had, only a small percentage of the questions submitted have been able to be discussed. Um, so I've been compiling those, and the next stage of our project is to figure out how we continue this conversation. And I'm looking at podcasts, I'm looking at blogs, um, and other ways that we might you get to all of the questions that have been asked in some way and to, to keep the conversation going. Um, so watch for that. Uh, hopefully we have your email address when you came in uh, and can let you know how those how those things turn out as well as the results of the experiment part of this as we as we analyze everything. I will let you fill things out. So take your time to fill those out. But while you're doing that, and the ushers will come and pick those up once you finish them just as uh, they did at the beginning. But while you're doing that, I just want to take this moment to thank you all for participating in this. Thank you for coming out tonight. We thank this an amazing panel. This is, is this the last one? This has been a journey, so. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> what, yeah, real a lot, quickly. A lot of miles. A lot of miles. What version of the Bible do you prefer, real quickly? I prefer the, the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. Okay. New International. I use, when I preach, I use the NRSV and use that most commonly, uh, but if I'm really going to go into a new phase of Bible study, I like to mix it up, because if I have only the same translation that I've, you know, I can quote it and it's, it's been going over and over in my head, I don't hear it the same way when I hear it in a different translation and read it in a translation that I'm not familiar with, new things pop out at me. And so I'll work with a particular translation for a while. I did the Living Bible when I was a teenager. I've done the NIV, the NRSV. Um, I hear the new Common English Bible is, is getting some really good press. Um, so I like to mix so it you up. you like them all. Yeah. Again, thank you all. Thank you for coming. You can find the books written by this, these panelists outside in the lobby there in the hallway. And uh, have a good night, everybody. Thanks thank for the great moderating. Thank, thank you, Liz. Thank, thank you. Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.